You are listening to the Star Coach Podcast with Meg Rentschler, episode 28. Welcome to Star Coaches, the show for professional coaches that brings you coaching strategies, tools, and resources. Whatever your focus or niche, take a front seat weekly as industry leaders, decision makers, and innovators share their wisdom and expertise on the ins and outs of successful coaching. Now join your host, Meg Rentschler, as she connects you with your star coaching potential. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Meg Rentschler, coach educator, executive, and mentor coach. I'm so excited to have you here and I'm equally excited that I'm able to record this from my office again. I've been traveling the last couple weeks and able to spend some time with some wonderful clients. Um, Actually was even able to move my mom with my siblings from her house into her apartment. And it's great to see her settling in and beginning this, this new phase of her life. And with all that being said, it's just nice to be back home again. Um, was trapped in the Tampa airport yesterday for several hours and was wondering if I was going to get home. But I'm happy to report that now I am here and hope that all of you were able to hear last week's show on wholeheartedness, a concept from the research and writing of Dr. Brene Brown about how owning our stories and loving ourselves through the good and the bad, and how when we embrace vulnerability and imperfection, we're able to live more wholeheartedly. We discussed the gifts of imperfection last week, courage, compassion, and connection. And I promised that we would follow up that show with the 10 guideposts that Dr. Brown discusses in her book, The Gifts of Imperfection, to help us walk toward a path of wholeheartedness. Now, Dr. Brown notes that the one thing that separated men and women who feel a deep sense of love and belonging from those who may be struggling for it is their belief in their worthiness of love and belonging. So how can we cultivate and perhaps help our clients cultivate a deep sense of love and belonging, being able to better create that wholehearted way of living? It's my hope that we can get closer to that by looking at the 10 guideposts that Dr. Brown has created from her interviews with thousands of men and women. As she studied shame, she actually began to hear stories of resiliency and healing. And that is where these 10 guideposts come from. So as we discuss these 10 guideposts in today's show, I encourage you to think about how they can serve you and how you can use this information to help serve your clients. The first guidepost toward wholehearted living is cultivating authenticity. Dr. Brown notes that authenticity is the daily practice of letting go of who we think we're supposed to be and embracing who we truly are. And when we mindfully practice authenticity, during our most soul-searching struggles, and don't we all have those times that we are just beat, we're just really struggling, it's at those times that we invite grace, joy, and gratitude into our lives. When we can let go of what people think about us or what we think they think about us and get deliberate about who we really are instead, we 
begin to let go of some of the trappings that can keep us stuck in shame and fear. It's really difficult at times when we're feeling vulnerable and exposed to get to that place of being deliberately authentic. Dr. Brown recommends using self-talk, perhaps a mantra, to reinforce your choice to be honest, to accept your imperfections. Her mantra is, don't shrink, don't puff up, stand your sacred ground. Perhaps you can think about what kind of a mantra would work best for you when you're standing in that place of being authentic. Be inspired by those who are courageous and whose authenticity really impacts and speaks to you. Make it a priority at the onset of any activity that you're going to be real. You're going to be your authentic self. It might not make you popular with everyone, but it is what's necessary to make a true connection and you will truly connect with those people who your authenticity speaks to. The second guidepost is cultivating self-compassion. In order to be self-compassionate, we have to let go of perfectionism. And that can be a real struggle for some of us. You know, there is a difference between trying to do our best or have a healthy achievement and growth and perfectionism. Research shows that perfectionism actually hampers our success. And if the fear of putting anything out there that is less than perfect keeps you paralyzed into inaction, then you're not going to put anything out there at all. How often have you held back on taking action due to fear of it not being good enough or that it isn't absolutely perfect yet? I know that I've fallen into that trap. The consequence of that is that no one can benefit from what you have to offer, that you're not sharing your gifts with the world. So how can we overcome perfectionism? As with many things in life, we can't make a change if we don't acknowledge that it's an issue. So acknowledge your vulnerabilities to feeling shame, judgment, blame. Acknowledge that self-talk that might keep you paralyzed. To become more resilient to shame, we have to practice self-compassion. And in that, you might find that you need to change the messages that you give yourself. Dr. Brown shares three elements of compassion. The first is self-kindness. Now, one of the things that I often do to help increase awareness of my clients is that I ask them if they would ever talk to their friends or their loved ones the way that they talk to themselves when they're in a place of shame or blame. If they're unable to treat themselves the way that they would treat a friend, that might very well be getting in their way. A second element of compassion is common humanity. Understanding that suffering and feelings of inadequacy are really a shared human experience. Therefore, when we can understand that we're not alone in our struggle, that can increase elements of self-compassion. And finally, mindfulness, taking that balanced approach to negative emotions so that we're neither 
exaggerating them or suppressing them. As much as we'd like, we can't wish away negative emotions. But we also don't need to put all of our focus and attention on the negativity. In finding a balance, we can acknowledge that there really is a relativity to negative emotions. And in that relativity, we can stay balanced between compassionate and realistic and dealing with negativity that might be there. The third guidepost that I encourage you to think about is how you can cultivate a resilient spirit. Resiliency is the ability to overcome adversity. Motivational speaker and author Lisa Reynolds refers to building bounce back muscles as we respond to the challenges and disappointments that are a part of life. Her description of building resiliency has always seemed very empowering to me. It has created a really good visual for me. Some people are better at bouncing back from hardships than others. They are able to let go of the numbing and the powerlessness in order to rebound from difficulties. So how can you respond to challenge, adversity, and trauma into wholehearted living? It's those people that can respond to stress and adversity in a way that help them actually take that and grow and thrive that are able to live a more wholehearted life. Research shows five primary traits of people who exhibit resiliency. First of all, they tend to be resourceful and show good problem-solving skills. So rather than focusing on what is lacking or what's not there, they're able to focus on how they might be able to overcome that challenge and and problem solve. And with that, the second thing is is that they're more, more likely to ask for help or to seek help. They are able to hold on to the belief that they can actually do something to help manage their feelings and to cope. So rather than to just giving in to the negative feeling or being overwhelmed by it, they believe that they can somehow manage that and cope in that situation. I think a key thing is that they have support systems available to them and they're able to access those support systems, which kind of built into the second of being willing to ask for help. And it feeds into number five, that people with resiliency tend to be connected to others. According to Dr. Brown's research, a key thing for every person that she talked to that tended to be more resilient was that they had a level of spirituality, not religion or theology, but this belief that we're all connected by a power greater than us. I have to emphasize, without exception, this belief in connectedness was a component of people's resiliency. So how might we build resilience? First of all, cultivate hope. Set realistic goals and figure out how to reach those goals. That's something that we do as coaches with our clients day in and day out. We explore options. We look at realistic goals and first steps towards those goals. The second thing is we want to practice critical awareness. Reality check our self-talk. 
pay attention to what our gremlin input is and trust the evidence. A huge part of cognitive coaching is doing this exactly, checking distorted thinking, using counterproductive thinking and and looking at it from another angle and switching that counterproductive thinking to something that can work better for us. It's a huge part of challenging those gremlins and being more practical in our awareness in moving forward. And finally, we want to let go of numbness and take the edge off of vulnerability, discomfort, and pain. In doing that, we need to sometimes lean into the discomfort. We need to try to feel feelings that we might be trying to numb out. And by doing so, we're staying mindful of that numbing behavior and instead choosing to be aware of those feelings. Being aware that we cannot selectively numb negative feelings to be able to feel positive feelings. If we're numbing emotions, we're a numbing across the board. So when we are instead able to acknowledge and lean into all kinds of feelings, we are better able to be resilient and deal with situations at hand. The fourth guidepost is cultivating joy and gratitude by letting go of scarcity and fear of the dark. Joyful people attribute their joyfulness to the practice of gratitude. It's very difficult to be joyful and grateful when we're focused on scarcity and fear. As a matter of fact, gratitude and joy are love-based emotions which are the opposite of those fear-based emotions. All of the work that I've done on gratitude involves the practice of gratitude, that we have to make a decision and take action to include gratitude in our daily lives. Some people keep gratitude journal or incorporate a gratitude meditation into their day. Being able to name and state gratitude out loud is another way of incorporating gratitude into your daily life. I am grateful for saying it out loud, loud and proud. Doing random acts of kindness to express gratefulness and gratitude is another way to incorporate gratitude into your life. Just as we need to use our physical muscles to be able to keep them from atrophying and and becoming useless, we must actively use our gratitude muscles every day to keep them strong. When we consider joy, Dr. Brown points out an important difference between happiness and joy. Happiness is tied to circumstance and joyfulness is tied to our spirit and to gratitude. When we're caught up in anxiety, fearfulness, and scarcity, It is the act of tying back into gratitude and joy that we can begin to find our way to a wholehearted way of living. The fifth guidepost to wholeheartedness is cultivating intuition and trusting faith by letting go of the need for certainty. You know, as coaches, 
We often use our intuition to explore issues and test concepts with our clients through inquiry and reflection. And it's having faith in our client's ability to determine what is right and what works for them that we can then share our intuition without attachment as to whether it's a fit for the client. We trust the client to let us know whether that intuition works for them. Through her research that led to her writings on wholeheartedness, Dr. Brown has crafted the following definition of intuition. Intuition is not a single way of knowing. It's our ability to hold space for uncertainty and our willingness to trust the many ways we've developed knowledge and insight, including instinct, experience, faith, and reason. So as we've discussed in this show, masterful coaching is the willingness to not know. It's the willingness to stay curious. How might this understanding of intuition serve you in your interactions with others and in your work with clients? Letting go of certainty can be a real challenge. It's our fear sometimes of the unknown or not being in the know, feeling like people expect us to have the answers, so therefore we should have the answers, that can feed into the fearfulness of being secure in the uncertainty. I find Dr. Brown's definition of faith to be helpful in creating new awareness for me around the issue of the need to be right or to have the answers. She states, faith is a place of mystery where we can find the courage to believe in what we cannot see and the strength to let go of our fear of uncertainty. Being able to be comfortable in uncertainty, as I've stated, is a sign of a masterful coach. Brene Brown's sixth guidepost is cultivating creativity by letting go of comparison. Through the lens of wholehearted living and loving, we need to use our creativity. It's not an issue of whether we feel like we're creative or not creative. It's about tapping into our own unique contribution to the world And that comes out through our expressed creativity. As long as we are creating something, we're cultivating meaning. The seventh guidepost is cultivating play and rest by letting go of exhaustion as a status symbol and productivity as self-worth. I remember going to a workshop over a decade ago on coaching, and the presenter had stated that she encourages her clients to work a four-day work week whenever possible because we all have the need for play. And those clients who took the day off for play and relaxation ended up being healthier, happier, and usually more successful overall. I remember thinking to myself, yeah, right, who can really do that? And research shows that while we live in a society where pushing the limits of human endurance is often considered a sign of commitment and dedication and a requirement even for advancement, when we have so much to do, we think about setting time aside for play or rest as 
we have to, we should ourselves, right? We should be doing this and we have to be doing this. And let me work 12 hours instead of eight hours. And let me work the weekends. But in fact, our bodies have a biological need for both play and rest. Dr. Brown notes that living and loving with our whole hearts requires us to respect our body's need for renewal. It may require dealing with our gremlins who tell us that we need to be working harder and longer and more diligently. So how can we work within these beliefs to better counter them and take care of ourselves and our family and better understand our clients' functioning. Dr. Brown encourages us to consider creating a ingredients for joy in meaning list, a list of specific conditions that are in place when everything feels good in your life. Being really mindful of what is going on and what are the things that are happening when things are just clicking, when they're really working well. And then compare that to your to-do list to create new awareness for your own self-care and perhaps help you make different determinations about what's on that to-do list. The eighth guidepost is cultivating calm and stillness by letting go of anxiety as a lifestyle. How many of us are in that realm of using anxiety as our lifestyle? A key finding in the research was not that men and women that were interviewed that were living wholehearted lives. It's not that they were anxiety free or even anxiety adverse. However, they were anxiety aware. They were committed to a way of living where anxiety was a reality, but not their lifestyle. They did this by making practices of cultivating calm and stillness into their lives. As with the practice of gratitude, in order to cultivate calm, we need to practice calm. When I was in high school, I had horrible migraine headaches. I ended up going to a headache clinic and then being prescribed biofeedback to help me reduce my stress and anxiety that were actually amplifying my headaches. Now, I learned many different kinds of relaxation and mindfulness practices while I was in biofeedback, and one of them that I use the most, even to this day, some 30 years later, is a breathing exercise. Now, when I inhale, I think I am, and when I exhale, I think the word calm. I am calm. Breathing is a wonderful way to practice calm. So is counting to 10 to calm a response. Using inquiry to respond to a potential conflict. Before you respond, you can ask a question or become curious. And that actually calms both you and the person that you're in the potential conflict with. Another way you may practice calm is to give yourself permission to say, you know what? I'm not sure. I need some time to think this through. There are many different ways that we can incorporate breathing, taking time, not responding immediately to practice calm in our life. When we think about stillness, 
Dr. Brown states, stillness is not about focusing on nothingness. It's about creating a clearing. It's opening up an emotionally clutter-free space and allowing ourselves to feel and think and dream and question. How can the concept of stillness enhance your living? Wholehearted guidepost number nine is cultivating meaningful work by letting go of self-doubt and the supposed to's. It might take time to get really clear on what meaningful work is for you and how that fits for you. How can you cultivate your gifts and talents and share them with the world? Now, one of the things that I really enjoy about teaching in a coaching program is that students that come into coaching are often on their second or third career and they're choosing to come into coaching because it's what speaks to them about being able to bring their gifts to the world. That they're excited to access the skills and the ability of coaching to partner with people to help them reach their goals. When we don't utilize our gifts and our talents, it impacts our emotional, physical, and spiritual well-being. It takes commitment to think about how you can bring meaningful work to the world. It might not be what pays the bills for you. It might be something that you access that meaningful work in a way outside of your bottom line income. And it can create a battle of self-doubt and fighting the supposed to's regarding how you honor what's meaningful, how you give that time, and how you bring your gifts into the world. We want to note our self-talk. We want to note what the gremlins are saying, because suppressing that or ignoring that does not make it go away. It creates more power in those gremlins. So instead, note your self-talk. Note what's going on in your battle to create that meaningful space for yourself. And when you have that clarity, you're then able to make decisions about what makes the most sense for you. The final guidepost for our discussion today is the 10th guidepost, cultivating laughter, song, and dance by letting go of being cool and always being in control. The lesson that came from people who are wholehearted in their living is that, quote, laughter, song, and dance create emotional and spiritual connection. They remind us of the one thing that truly matters when we're searching for comfort, celebration, inspiration, or healing, that we are not alone, end quote. If we're worried about what people will think or how we're going to be perceived, we stand a chance of letting go of these important elements. When we believe in the importance of laughter, song, and dance for our souls and our connection, how can we honor it and hold a place for it in our lives? We learn so much from the stories and experiences of those around us who live from a place of loving and belonging 
rather than living from a place of fear and disappointment? How might you apply the lessons learned from this research and apply it to your life and your work with your clients? If you would like to do a deeper dive into this work, I encourage you to pick up a copy of The Gifts of Imperfection by Dr. Brene Brown. Let's have a conversation on the Star Coach Facebook page on how this work impacts you and how you can apply it to your work with clients. And you know you can always send me your comments at starcoachshow.com. Visit starcoachshow.com for more information about the work of Dr. Brene Brown and to learn more about our show. Sign up for the free book giveaway. This is the last week to get in the drawing for Results Coaching by Fran Schuster, our guest in episode 14, and for you to be able to access free gifts given by other guests on the show, be sure to visit the Star Coach Show resource page. You know, after a couple weeks of being on the road, I am so happy to be back home to be able to put finishing touches on the upcoming membership site. I get more excited with every new piece that I add. So stay tuned, more information coming up very soon about the Star Coach membership site. This is Meg Rentschler wishing you the very best for your coaching success. We'll see you next week.